Hello, and thank you for joining the New Life Baptist Church podcast. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you through this platform, and it's our desire that you would have an open heart to receive what the Lord has for you through this message. If you'd like to contact us, please visit our website at newlifecasagrande.com. There you'll find contact information to reach us directly, or if you're local to the Casa Grande area, you'll find information to plan your first visit. If you benefit from this sermon, please share it with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Now, let's get ready to hear what God has for us today. I'm just glad, I'm just glad that someday we're going to be taken out of this place. The rapture is going to come, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says the groom will have come for his bride and will be taken from here. I believe it. It's biblical. We're going to talk about that in the next couple weeks. Um, and you and I will spend eternity with the Lord forever. And uh, I am so thankful uh, for that promise of, of a perfect day, a perfect time, a perfect night, a perfect body, and we can rest in that today. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? I need you. And I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' precious and most wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter number two. Before we dive into the text this morning, I want us to go back and just recap uh, on a couple of things. And I want us to answer the question, who is speaking? Again, be reminded to whom he is speaking. And then thirdly, why we have this passage right here, chapters two and three, prior to the actual prophecy of his coming beginning in chapter four and what's going to happen after that. Now, again, we are looking into this series entitled Looking for That Blessed Hope. We've recognized, secondly, that the word revelation means uncovering. Okay, so the word revelation means uncovering. All right, uncovering of what? In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, it's the uncovering, the unveiling of the churches. All right, and then um, after this, it's the uncovering of what Christ is going to do after he comes. Okay, and so we have this prophecy in front of us. So here's three things I want us to remember. Number one, who is speaking? Uh, throughout the passages, beginning four weeks ago and, uh, and through today, each of the churches launch with a statement of who is speaking to that particular church. Now, we know John is writing this stuff down on an island, but who is speaking to John and telling him to write this stuff down to the letter that is going to be mailed to these seven different churches, all right? So let's get our minds focused. We've got to see this. So chapter 2, verse 1, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, these things saith he, who is he, the one that holds, holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, chapter 1 has defined for us clearly who this who is, and it is Jesus. Chapter 1 of Revelation lets us know that Jesus is the one speaking in the passage. Therefore, he is the one that in his hands is holding the seven stars. Now, there's another phrase for the seven stars. It's not seven literal stars of heaven. The word stars there is also the word where we get the idea of angels. 
angels. He either references them as a star or as an angel. And by the way, Tyler did a great job last week defining who the seven angels are. They are the, the other word for that, as mentioned, are seven messengers. The seven messengers would be the seven pastors of these seven churches. So he's holding the pastors, the stars, the angels in his hand. The Bible says he's also walking among the seven candlesticks. Chapter one, again, refers to who the candlesticks are, and those are the seven churches. So in our minds, we've got to put this together. Jesus, God, is walking among the seven churches, and he, God, Jesus, has the authority to instruct based upon what he sees, all right? So here's Christ walking among the seven churches, holding the messengers in his hand. Look at the next church. This is uh, Smyrna, verse 8. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, there's, there, are, there are two distinct statements here. The person who is speaking, watch, the person who is speaking says that he is the first and the last, and the person who is speaking says that he is the one that was dead and alive. So can we go backwards with that? Because I think that's easier for us. Who is the one in scripture who was dead and came to life? Jesus Christ. And he's the one that references himself as dead and is alive. What does he also reference himself as in this passage? The one, the one who is the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I am the alpha the omega, I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end. That statement is a reference to who? To who specifically? Well, in the passage, Jesus is saying it, but who does that phrase connect through? Can I say this? Although Jesus says this of himself here, who does that phrase reference itself to throughout the rest of the Bible? God. Jesus says, I am God. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I'm the one that was dead and now is alive. So God himself, Jesus, is walking amidst the seven golden candlesticks with the stars, the messengers in his hand. Look at the next one. The Bible says in chapter two, verse 12, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword and the two edges. Okay, all right, now don't forget, this is the church of Pergamos that has immediately followed the church of Smyrna, which was the church that was what? The crushed church, the persecuted church, right? And so watch what he is saying. I know you have experienced the sword, but I want you to know that I am the sword. I am the one that's greater even than that. I am the two-edged sword that is spoken of in Scripture that, that divides asunder. I am the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, say it, church, was God. And the word became God, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten full of grace and truth. He is the word. He's the word. And this church Pergamos was about to begin to give in to wrong doctrine and to wrong thinking. And Christ is letting them know that I'm the word. I'm the truth. Look at the fourth one. 
chapter 2, verse 18. This is Thyatira, discussed last week. These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like unto fine brass. So remember, we got to read it in context. What's the context of this one? If you go back to chapter number one, remember the description of Jesus that was given in chapter number one? We talked about it like five weeks ago. That description of Jesus, he said this, I have eyes of fire. Flaming fire, which means I am the one that reveals and sees and brings to light. Nothing's missing from my gaze. And then he said this about himself, I'm the God that's got the feet of brass. The idea of brass, again, is that idea of um, bringing correction and instruction. I'm the one that has the ability to do this. So, so let's tie it together so far from chapter 2. Jesus says, I, me, I am the one that holds the churches and walks among the churches. The one who is the first and the last, he who was dead and now is alive. The one who is the word of God that divides asunder. I am the one, the passage says, who has eyes of flaming fire, who can see all things and can uh, correct the brass, all things. This is him. This is God. This is Jesus. This is the one who has the authority. Man, it was so clearly articulated two weeks ago that the authority, it's not in the church, and the authority is not in the pope, and the authority is not in priest, and the authority is not in random books, and the authority is not in professors. The authority for life, for faith and practice, is who? Jesus Christ. And that is what is established in this passage. It's Jesus who is speaking. Number two, who is he speaking to? We've got to go through this fast. He is speaking to seven literal churches when this passage was written. As John was writing, I know I've said this, but I've got to say it again. As John was writing these letters on the island of Patmos, across the boat, or across the water, on boat, by ship, was seven Towns that were very close to each other, within miles apart. Seven literal churches in those towns, or those towns consisted of a church group, Christians, that he was writing literal letters to at that moment, which means these churches were literally going through these things right now, this moment, presently. Okay, secondly, it's written to seven types of churches, which mean this. We can find these churches even today in the 21st century. We can find right now literal churches who are undergoing persecution. Their lives are being taken because they're believers in Jesus Christ in the 21st century. We can find churches who have yoked up with the world system and the world is dictating. By the way, did you read the news yesterday? I believe if I'm not wrong, I, I gotta be careful. I believe it's the Anglican church leader yesterday said this. It was in the news. I believe I'm right, okay? I, I could be wrong, so help me with that. But um, he said this, and it was reported in the news yesterday on Fox News and all around. He said, we think that maybe the word Father in the Lord's Prayer is inappropriate. We may need to take the word Father out of the Lord's Prayer and replace it with another pronoun. That's the leader of the Anglican church. Okay, so you understand in the 21st century, we have people changing the Bible, changing truth, changing doctrine to adapt to the world's system. Uh, that was discussed two weeks ago, the church at Pergamos, 
right? So, so, so we can see these churches uh, existing in our day and time right now, maybe some of them even in the city of Casa Grande, right? Makes sense? Number three, churches are made of individuals. A church, the word church means called out assembly. The assemblies are made up of what? Believers and so are people. So inside every church, there are individuals. Therefore, if God is writing the letter to the church, he's writing the letter to the individuals who reside within the, the, the church, all right? So um, we can find these um, types of individuals, I believe, in every church. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, that, that new life has somebody right now whose life is about to be taken because there's a, they're a believer, right? So Smyrna may not be existing at the moment, but we can find types and references to all these individuals in us. Which brings me to the conclusion as we study this, and I hope you're making this connection. I hope this study is not just, oh, that's prophetic. It's either gone or it's coming. I don't have to worry about it. This is great information. I'm glad to learn this stuff. Man, this is cool to figure out about church history. But it no, 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 no. Wait a minute. If these are seven literal churches and seven literal types of churches filled with individuals then it would be wise of us as we hear the teaching and preaching of this stuff to examine ourselves and say, hey, Lord, can that letter actually be written to me? Is there something in my walk, and I'm so glad over the last four weeks as we've discussed this, there's been application made individually to us as a church and to us as a people. And that's important for the day. Thirdly, or excuse me, fourthly, the fourth thing we need to see here is this book is prophetical in that it represents seven ages. Seven ages. And we talked about the church at Ephesus was the apostolic church, the apostles, and how they, the church got going for a little while and things were going good. Then all of a sudden in their busyness, they lost sight of their first love. Okay. Then we saw the persecuted church started under Nero. All right, by the way, if you are missing out on the Romans study on Sunday mornings at 10, my mind sat here. I've been studying church history for years, and I sat here. My mind was blown at the connection of uh, the, the Roman Empire to the book of Romans in ways that I had missed or forgotten, uh, and I was so encouraged during that 10 o'clock hour. You need to be here for the study of the book of Romans if you can. It, it's, just, it's just amazing. But you got the first church, the apostles who lost their first love. Then you've got the second church who is the persecuted church under Nero, the emperor. Then you have from that church, uh, Tyler discussed the church of Pergamos, Constantine yoking up the church, marrying the church with the culture and with government. And then you have the fourth church that was, uh, as a result of that marrying, we have the Roman. Because again, at that time, the Roman government was the, the leading power. And so Constantine yoked up God and religion with Roman power, and they came together, right, uh, as one. And then we have the Roman Catholic Church, the start of the Dark Ages, and all the chaos that came from false teaching and false doctrine within that system, okay, uh, up until what we're going to study today in the Church of Pergamos, uh, excuse me, the Church of Sardis. Next week, we'll see the Church at Philadelphia, uh, the age where the gospel went out to known worlds, and then and then we'll close out with the church of Laodicea, where we're living right now. So there are seven church ages, all right? So with that being said, the who that is speaking is Jesus. The to whom he is speaking are the churches. And then thirdly, why is he speaking? Are you listening? 
Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, church. I will show thee, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 4, right after we get done talking about the churches, the first verse mentioned, the first verse says this, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be what? Hereafter. Church, Jesus is coming back. And for some reason, for some reason, God wanted us to get a view of churches. He wanted to uncover, watch, he wanted to flip back the cover on us. Can I say us? The churches? Before he ever told us what was to come, he wanted us to recognize what was happening now. Right now, whether it's in an age or in this church or in us individuals, why? Because Jesus is coming. Me and my wife left uh, two weeks ago on a Thursday morning. My two younger boys, Reese and Russ, and we had already flown out to see uh, my parents in North Carolina. They had already left, so all that was left in the house was me, Robin, and Reagan and Wren, my uh, second and third oldest child. And so uh, now, now we're about to leave. They take us to the airport, Wren drops us off, and the whole time I'm thinking, oh man, for the first time, I'm leaving my children alone in the house by themselves for 10 days. You remember how that felt? I, I still remember when my parents went away on a trip and left me alone for the first time. There's this sense that comes over you of freedom. You know it is. When, when we got out of the car at the airport at Phoenix, you know there was a sense of something that said in Wren as she pulled away and we're standing on the curb with our suitcases. She didn't think, I'm going to miss them so much. You know that's true. You know it's true. Did you, honey? Did you think I'm going to miss them terribly? Oh, you're lying in church. I'm just kidding. I, I think she thought that for maybe a second. But the overwhelming thought was, Freedom. Right? Free at last, right, Ms. Ramsey? I mean, no dad, no mom, no time schedules, no this, no that. You know what I'm talking about? Um, but we did leave things that had to be accomplished, and we did set into place some rules that had to be followed, and, 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 and we did set in some uh, desires that needed to be met while we were gone and expectations that needed to be fulfilled. And, and, and although, unfortunately, for the sake of the illustration, because she's the one that picked us up from the airport, she knew what time the plane was coming in. But what if she didn't? Do you think the 10 days would be different if she did not know when our trip was over and she didn't know when camp was done and she didn't know when family visit was finished and she had no idea when I would come walking through that door? Do you think the feeling would be a little bit different? And that's why we're doing this. Because God has saved us and he has cleansed us and he has left us here for a reason and he has, told, uh, he has not told us the day or the hour in which he will come back, but he has told us that he knows because he's walking about in our midst what condition we are in right now prior to his coming. And then he instructs us on how to get this right. This is why we have this passage. This is why we see this prophetic understanding of how things are rolling and how things are happening over history. 
And so let's dive into the passage that God has for us this morning. We're going to talk about the church at Sardis. And Tyler said this two weeks in a row, and I second it. There is no way, there is no way that we can put everything that God wants us to hear in a 45-minute segment of time, if you're lucky. I mean, about 45 minutes, right? That there's just no way we can put that in there. So we're going to have to bump these things and trust that we'll hit some more of this in later dates, but that you will take the time yourself to be a student of the word. And the Bible says, if you read this personally, you are blessed. And so I encourage you to do that. Sardis, the church of Sardis, located atop of a high hill, matter of fact, 1,500 feet above sea level, the highest of all the seven cities, overlooking the Hermas Valley, 50 miles east of Smyrna and 30 miles southeast of the city we discussed last week, Thyatira. Sardis was um, a lofty, arrogant, prideful city. Uh, If you study the history of the place of Sardis, because literally, because of their location and the way they were settled, they thought much of themselves. They, they did not fear attack because they could see it coming. They would get comfortable in their power and in their setting. And because of this, Sardis was looked at by the other cities as an arrogant sort. This is the city of Sardis. Concerning the church age, if we're going to go back to the timeline, we're looking at about 1500 to 1700 B.C., This church is following the, um, can I say this, the stabilization of the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to second what was said last week. I didn't have to introduce um, the Roman Catholic history to you like Tyler did through Pergamos and Thyatira. And I do want to second this. Um, New Life will never be known as the church that belittle or degrades any group. But we will be known as the church who clearly speaks truth from the word of God, even if that seems as if it's degrading or hurting. I will not speak lowly of people who attend or had a history or came out of or were born into the Roman Catholic Church or the Mormon Church or Jehovah's Witness or whatever you want to talk about. I, I won't degrade the Muslim faith, okay? I, I just won't do that. But I will teach you truth which may to you feel like it is hurting or stabbing at it, okay? And that's important. However you want to look at it, you cannot deny history and you cannot deny the word of God. And both of these line up, okay? And so in reference to this, you're going to see the impact of the Roman Catholic Church upon the church movement over the timeline. And by the way, when I was a kid in school, I was taught church history. And sorry, stop. I was taught world history, weren't you? World history. I was taught American history. But just as important as it is for me to see the timeline of the world and the timeline of of American history, it's just, just, just as important for you and I to know church history. When did it begin? What has happened over the centuries? Has it stayed faithful? Has it veered off course? Who were the church leaders? Who were those leading and guiding? 
It's important to know that. Matter of fact, if you're interested, I have uh, books that give us true historical information on how the church was lined out. You're welcome to study that yourself. We're hitting it in, in such a condensed matter here, but it's important. And so in this, we have Sardis, 1500, 1700 BC. Uh, Sardis, the word literally ha- or implies the word remnant. Uh, the great church leaders, a part of this uh, would be people like uh, Martin Luther, John Knox, John Calvin, the Puritans. Does, does that ring a bell? Here's one that will ring a bell, the Pilgrims. If the Reformation church, the coming out of the Dark Ages, began in the 1500s, then Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1490. Two, got it? So you're tying it all together. There's been this oppression and false thinking, and now there's a coming out of that, a reforming from that, a small smidgen of people walking away from false doctrine to propel the Christian growth and, and the Christian faith. So, so, so with all that being said, let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he, that hath the seven spirits of God. I just want to tap this really quick so there's no confusion. Uh, how many spirits are there of God? One. Then why does this text say seven spirits of God? In order to know that, you're going to have to not assume, and you're going to have to study your Bible. The seven spirits of God are mentioned in other places, specifically in first and most importantly, Isaiah chapter number 11. In Isaiah chapter number 11, the Bible says he saw the spirit or he experienced the spirit and the spirit of God had seven different characteristics. It's actually mentioned here in this passage. Here are the characteristics mentioned. Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven, sorry, items, seven different characteristics of one spirit, okay? So in this passage, this church needs to recognize that the spirit of God, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits. Who has the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ, okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, seven characteristics. Matter of fact, the Bible says in the book of Colossians that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ, the one that is going to help through these seven characteristics to get the church out of darkness and back into the light. Makes sense, doesn't it? Watch what the text says. And the seven stars, we've already recognized who those are. Here's what he says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name. The word name here is the Greek word for recognition, okay? So um, it, it's obvious if, if, you know, Dan Wolf got up here and said, hey, church, just want to let you know today Pastor Tyler will be preaching to us. By saying Pastor Tyler, they're going to be looking for a six-foot-two guy, three-two, is that right? It's somewhere in there uh, with a black hair and a blackish beard and, and a little built, looks like a man's man, and, 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 and you're going to be expecting that. He gave his name, and his name gave him recognition or connection to what he was. If, if he said, Pastor Ray's going to be preaching today, you're going to be looking at a six-foot chubby guy with no hair, okay? That, the idea that those figures are going to pop into your mind. Now, now, now watch. 
in this text when he says, I know thy works and thou hast a name. It means there's something that you're recognized by. Okay, what are they recognized by? That thou livest and art dead. Well, that is interesting. That is interesting. Here, here's what he says about the works at this church. You, you are a church that is recognized as being alive, but in all actuality, you are dead. That is what the text is saying. You're, you're seeing your reputation is that, that, that you are alive, but in truth, you are dead dead. You you say, well, Pastor Ray, how is that possible? How could a church be recognized as alive, but, but in all actuality be dead? Watch, because God, Jesus Christ, the sword, the divider, who's walking among the churches is the only one that can recognize our true identity. He's the only one that can fillet us open and really see what's happening down on the inside. And all the outward things become as dust and fall away. And what is true happening on the inside is what matters. That's why Jesus said, some of you someday are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we know you? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we serve you? And upon which Jesus says, I will look at you, these are his words, and he will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Is it possible that we can feel as if we're alive and be recognized as being alive, but in all actuality be dead in our trespasses and sins? Absolutely. You want me to help you identify that? Are you ready? It's called religion. And there are a lot of people alive today who are religious but dead. Because religion says, here's a list of things to do. Relationship, true salvation, Jesus says, here's what I have done. Religion always asks of you. Relationship always gives away to Christ. And here is the church that we've learned who got its launch by marrying the world, who from that marriage has formulated acts of worship that are not written in Scripture. And those acts of worship are deemed as those items in which will save you. All the while, somebody's getting rich off of it. As mentioned, somebody's getting powerful off of it. And it's not Jesus. Is it possible that in this room right now, there are some of you who have been very religious throughout your life. You've attended church and you have the appearance of being alive. But if Christ were to come right now to take his own whom he knows with him, you would be left here because you're actually dead, separated from God. Watch what the text says. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, recognition that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, 
Wake up and strengthen the things which remain. And here's what is so important to remember about this looking alive, being recognized as alive, but being dead. It is the literal definition of hypocrisy. You've, had, you've become so great in yourself and in religious activities that even you yourself believe that you're good. And yet you're dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says that false doctrine has become so real that they actually believed that those doctrines would bring them life. Um, I'm, I'm going to use a word that was introduced uh, during this time, and then I want to define it. The, 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 the church of the Dark Ages ad, adhered themselves to what is called orthodoxy. Matter of fact, have you ever heard that word, orthodox? The orthodox church the Orthodox Jew, the Orthodox fill-in-the-blank. And what the word Orthodox or Orthodoxy means is this. Listen to the definition. It means an adherence to correct or accepted creeds. Especially in, uh, excuse me, especially in religion, orthodoxy within Christianity refers to the acceptance of doctrines by defined various creeds and ecumenical councils in antiquity, but different churches accept different creeds and different councils. And so basically this, the orthodoxy of a church is its standards by which it adheres to, its doctrines by which it lives by. So let me ask you a question. Can we be orthodox and be wrong? Yes. Uh, Meaning this, can I be part of a movement or a part of a church uh, that I have come to believe in and put my confidence in, and yet the orthodox beliefs of that church are actually false? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me share some. Let, let, let us help with this really fast. So, so here's one of them, okay? Um, a part of the Orthodox Catholic, Roman Catholic Church and belief system. Salvation is not in Jesus Christ alone. If you go right now and Google it yourself, you will find that salvation within the Catholic Church is not within Jesus Christ alone, but it's in Christ. If you ask a Catholic um, who died on the cross, who are they going to say died on the cross? Jesus. If you ask the Catholic if they rose again, if Christ rose again from the grave and conquered death and hell, what are they going to say? Jesus. Yes, he did. If you ask the Catholic, how are they going to get to heaven? How are they going to have eternal life? If they're a true Catholic, part of the orthodoxy of the Catholic Church, it's not just going to be Jesus. It's going to be Jesus, and then they're going to say this, and... So connected to the belief in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are going to come some things that either A, allow them to be saved, right, Doug? Or B, keep them from keeping it. Is that right? So Doug was raised in, the, uh, in Catholicism all of his life, and you were actually an altar boy at one time, correct? So fully, did you go to school within the Catholic Church? Okay, no. Your dad did. Okay, so raised in a, a strong Catholic home. So what Doug would say, and he was nodding back there, was that uh, in order to be saved and eternally secure, that I have to believe in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and there are some things that I have to keep and do in order to keep that. Is that false orthodoxy? According to Scripture, yes. 
Okay, here's another example. Baptism. Within the Catholic Church, there's taught infant baptism. Um, and we recognize that within the Bible and the Word of God, infant baptism is never taught. Moms and dads, please hear me. If you were raised in the Catholic Church and you had your baby baptized to give them some type of security in heaven, it's not true. It's not in the Bible. It's never mentioned anywhere in this whole entire book. Never. You say, well, where did that come from? Well, they, they adopted their own book and their own ideals and their own teaching. And in another book, it's mentioned, but it's never mentioned in the Bible. Infant baptism does not save somebody. Salvation comes through what? Jesus Christ alone. And again, I'm not here, I'm not here to hurt you or degrade. I'm here to show you what is happening from the time the church of Thyatira came out of the dark ages into what the Reformation is called and, 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 the, and the start of true teaching, pure teaching. You're going to see that in a minute uh, here in Scripture. And, and basically what was happening was they were making people feel like they were alive, but they're actually what? Dead. Here's another one. Did you know purgatory is not taught in this book? Did you know penance is never taught here? It's not here. It's nowhere here. But one day, the Pope came along and said, hey, if you would like, we can let you pay your family members out of purgatory because we want to raise money to build the St. Peter Cathedral. This is true. Go study church history. And so what people did, they, they used the emotions of being able to pay for somebody's salvation out of purgatory so that a building could be built. Are you with me? It's never written in the Bible. Again, I'm not condemning or degrading someone. I'm actually condemning and degrading false teaching and false doctrine. Why? Because it made them feel alive but they were actually what? Dead. Do you see it now? Are, are, are you seeing why Jesus gives this information to the church? It would be wrong of Ray McCormick to say, hey, we're going to build a gymnasium, and the best way to do that is for you to pay for your loved ones not to suffer in hell for their wrongdoing. Give money to the church. We'll build a gym. I think we need to build a gym really fast because most of us don't want our loved ones to suffer, right? By the way, gym's not in the near future. It's just an illustration. Okay. So, so the, the whole point of this is right, right? It's wrong orthodoxy. Do you see how people can now come to the point where they're believing what they've been taught is right? And here's why it happened. Because in the dark ages, the Pope refused to put this book in the hand of the common man. He would not, the only people who could have the Bible in the dark ages were the priests, the monks, and the authorities that sat upon the, the, the uh, I was going to say the throne, but you know, the power seat. They could have the Bible, but they did not, they would not. It was against the law for the common man to have a copy of this book. Therefore, they didn't translate it out of Latin because they didn't want the common man to understand in their known language. We're going to learn a little more about that in just a minute. Do you see how people could actually think they're alive? 
but actually be dead? That is horrible. And by the way, that hasn't stopped. There are still groups teaching false doctrine, making people today feel alive that are actually dead. You say, pastor, how do we know if we've got the right one? You need to believe in the book, not a religion. You need to believe in the book, not a man. You need to go to the Bible yourself and let God teach clearly what truth is and then follow that in your everyday life. That's how we know that we're in the right spot. Notice here, number two, the counsel. Quickly, I gotta hurry, the counsel. Remember, first of all, he says, go, go, go back to the text with me in Revelation chapter number three. Look at verse three. Actually, go to verse two, sorry. Be watchful. The word watchful means this, wake up. Okay, can I say it that way? Because that's what I had to do to my teenager this morning, Reese, wake up. Be alert. Wake up, open your eyes, look, wake up, be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain. The things that remained faithful and steady that are right, that that is what we have to strengthen, that are ready to die. If we don't do it now, it may fade away. For if I have not found thy works perfect, the word perfect means complete or mature before God. And here's how they're going to do that. He, he gives him really four pieces of instruction in order to overcome this and how to work through this. Uh, notice here, be watchful, wake up, and first of all, verse, verse 3, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Remember, remember, remember what it was. Remember the truth, remember Christ Go back to the center of the gospel. Go back to the center of what salvation is. Remember, it's all about Jesus. It's not about religion. It's all about Christ. Remember, and I'm going to be brief. There's so much that I could say here and break open. But remember, secondly, return. The, The idea is to go back, remember, and return to, and hold fast the things that thou hast learned. Okay, uh, the, the word, the phrase hold fast in the scripture means to cling tightly to, okay, to cling tightly to. So uh, for the church that was dead, or thought they were alive and actually dead, there's a small remnant of them being encouraged to remember Christ, to return and cling to, hold to it. Hold to it. W- what do I mean by that? Hey, can I challenge, got a lot of young people in the room tonight this morning, all of our teenagers that are here, hey kids, look, I know the culture of the world is trying to reject right thinking and to change how you're thinking, but I'm going to encourage you, please cling to this. Cling to this. This has to be the determining factor to define for you what's right and what's wrong. And I know your friends seem overwhelming, and I know the culture seems convincing, but this has to be the determining factor to what you hold to and what you cling to. Remember what Jesus Christ has done and return to that by holding tightly to the Word of God. Cling to it. He's just helping me with some AC work because I'm now beginning to perspire. I feel like I'm in Florida all of a sudden. Remember, return to, hold tightly. Notice what he says next, repent. By the way, if I could, um, I know I'm throwing you off back there a little bit, Chris, but could you throw the graphic up? 
Could you throw the graphic up for me? Notice a common thread. There's only two churches that Christ did not rebuke. Therefore, there are five churches that he rebukes. Do you see a common theme of the counsel of God to those who have walked away from the things of God? There are some similarities to many of them, but there is one word that rings true over and over and over again. The, the literal word found in all five of these churches, and it's the word repent. 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 Repent means what? Repent just simply means a turning away from which means I was going this way, I thought this way was right, this is what I thought, but now I am going to, would you say the word with me? I'm going to repent, and I'm gonna turn and think the way God thinks. I'm gonna go the way God desires. I am leaving myself, and I'm repenting and turning unto Christ. Is it not a coincidence that when we go off course, what God calls us to do is what? Repent to turn back to. He's calling for this age, this church, and we're going to see it in a minute really quickly, but he's calling for us as individuals and us as a church, if we find ourselves in these circumstances, to turn to God, not to the church, not to the Pope, not to other papal authorities, to turn to God. Return to the scripture. Return to the two-edged sword, the one who walks about in the midst, who is the first and the last, the dead that was alive. Return to God, the one who can see all with his gaze and corrects all with his feet. Isn't that cool? God just says, come back to me. That's how you get it back on the path, is come to me. So notice the text here again, back to Revelation. Remember Therefore, what thou hast received, and I will come unto thee as a thief, excuse me, hold fast, repent, and then notice what he says next. And I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I shall come unto thee. Now, this is not the return of Christ. This is correction that's going to come when they're not ready. Simple as that. If you don't turn back, remember, repent, then there's correction coming, and you're not going to know when it's coming. And, and I have to be honest, if, if I'm going to struggle in life, I don't want it to be because um, um, I, I didn't repent and do right and had to suffer the correction of God. Rather, I would rather, if I'm going to struggle, struggle for doing right. Notice here the fourth thing he says in this passage, remember, return, repent, and recognize you're not alone. I love what he says in verse number three, I hast a few names. I have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Isn't that cool? When you don't think there's someone with you, there, there is a remnant of people who want to do right, who haven't bought into the lie, who are not following orthodoxy that is false, that are faithful to do right. I'll show you that in just a minute. I can't wait to get there. Hey, teenagers in the room, there are some kids at Vista. They might be small, but they still love God. There are some kids at Union. There are some kids at Mission. You, they're there. If they're not there, there are some people here that, that want to do right and believe right and live right and not be blind 
There are some pure people standing for truth whose garments have not been spotted. And so recognize that and be encouraged. Remember, return, repent, recognize. And let's move on to the last thing, the reward. Quickly, the reward. Notice what he says in verse number five. He that overcomes. I love that word. He that overcomes. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in other churches. So, so, so here's what God says. The, the, the person who overcomes, who wakes up and remembers. The person who chooses not to be defiled by the things of death, but rather return and walk in newness of life. Those people, the Bible says that God, the Lord himself will um, give, give him the opportunity to be identified with purity. Notice what it says, to him that overcomes, I will give him a robe of what? Of white. That robe is the word, the idea in New Testament culture of sanctification, that set apart, that holiness, that pure living. Your identity will be connected in holiness to God and righteousness unto God, which is awesome. Man, what we need is not families who blend in. We need families who are set apart, holy unto God. And, and, and the Bible says our identity before God here and in heaven will be that robed with a pure Pure vessel, pure robe. And, and, and notice what it says. It says, and shall not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, now this is, um, th- th- there's, there's multiple um, opinions about the book of life. I'm going to give you the three most popular ones, if you would. So some people believe the book of life is the book in which your name was written when you came to belief in Jesus Christ, okay? So you, you confessed Christ, you accepted him as your savior. At that moment, your name is written in the book of life. Then the second opinion is that of this, that God has predestined and predetermined before the beginning of time all of those who were going to be saved. Therefore, he would also have to predetermine all those who are going to be condemned before Jesus ever came, before life ever began, God's already predestined, predetermined, and he has written all these names in a book. Now, uh, the Calvinist would believe this, and here's the struggle that I would have with that, okay? If God has already predestined it, then how can we undo what God's already predestined and be blotted? That, that, that's, a, that's a contradiction. If God's already predetermined it, then I cannot be blotted. But the Bible says that name will be blotted out. Matter of fact, this is not the only reference to that being blotted out. Or the third opinion is this, that when I was born, made, designed, came to life, as David says in Psalm 139, in that book, all my members were written as in continuance, there was none of them when, when I was currently wrought in the secret places of the earth. Upon that moment, names were written by God into the Lamb's book of life. Because God had predetermined that we would know him through the coming of his son. Uh, the Bible says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that we were made in his image and in his likeness, good in fellowship with him. That's how we were made. 
But when we reject Jesus Christ and his truth of salvation and we have turned our backs, our names are then blotted out. That's where I would fall. I believe that when God made us and designed us, the the, the names, and there's other places that would say that our names at birth were written at this moment or at beginning, and then later when we rejected Christ, names blotted out. Whatever the case may be, here's what the Bible says. For those of us who choose not to be duped into false thinking and teaching, who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to live purely unto him, our names won't be blotted out. Is that pretty simple? And I hope that you have chosen not to live like you were alive, but actually dead, but rather you have lived alive because he died. And and, and that is the goal. That is what God has given himself for us so that we could walk in newness of life and our lives be radically changed because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The counsel, remember, return, repent, recognize the reward to be identified by purity, to be recognized, I love this, confessed and acknowledged openly by Christ to God. So so here's what this means. You choose to reject false teaching, someday Jesus. Now, I don't don't really know how it's going to work. Can I use my imagination and then we'll back off of that? I believe the text is saying, hey, hey, this is Jesus, right? Hey, God, God, whoa, 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 look right here. Um, Ray McCormick, he's in. Now, now, I don't think it'll necessarily go that way. Maybe at the judgment seat, it, it's that moment, or, or, or the great white throne judgment, at that moment, they're going through. Matter of fact, did I get those mixed up? They're going, always getting mixed up. They're going through those who are saved and not saved, those cast in the lake of fire, those that are his, and at that moment, my name will be written or, or read. He will testify of me. He will confess me to the Father. I don't care how it's happening. The Bible says, if I choose to believe, choose to believe by faith, and remember what Christ has done, that someday Jesus himself will confess me to the Father. He's ours. He's one of us. Amen. Hallelujah. As we close, I want us to get a quick taste of this, and I hope you'll give me permission to read, and then I'll shut things down really quick. Ready? Let's go back to the Reformation period, and let's try to get a historical visual of Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, okay? So I've given you a connection to the literal church. Let's go back and close out today's message by giving you a connection to the church age. There's a man that is familiar to us by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the son of a German craftsman, Martin Luther was searching for peace with God and, 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 and was trying to find his way. And he started out by going to college to be uh, in law, but through a, a crazy night and an awful experience, he, he, he decided to search in another direction. And again, Martin Luther is, is famous to us. He, he would be the father of the Lutheran church, right? Martin Luther one night got caught in a horrible thunderstorm and lightning is crashing all around him and he began to wonder if I'm hit by a lightning bolt what happens to me after that and struggling to find peace he joined the Augustine Monastery which is a Roman Catholic organization uh, for priests and monks and then was consecrated to be a monk in 1506. And by 1507, he was now an official priest in the Catholic Church. 
1508, he became, uh, or excuse me, he began teaching at the Wittenberg, University of Wittenberg in Germany, and became one of, still today, the most famous popular teachers ever to teach in that institution. Although this took place in his life, uh, the story is told that Martin Luther still had no peace with God. During a visit to Rome in 1510, Luther was appalled by the corruption that he saw in the papal court and in the church. And in those days, only special clergy was given permission, as I mentioned earlier, to study the Bible. He had the opportunity to go to Rome himself and for several years had access to the libraries there at Rome and began studying the Bible himself. He came across the passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that said this, the just shall live by faith. That's that one of the most popular verses in Martin Luther's life. The just shall live by what? By faith, and that bothered him because that's not what he had been taught. He had been taught in the Roman Catholic teaching that the judge lived by works. Okay, so, so, so as he began to study this, one thing led to another. He spent time there in that library in Rome, continuing to study the book of Psalms, the book of Romans, and the book of Galatians. And after that, began to literally, while a priest at the Roman Catholic Church, began to preach faith alone in Jesus Christ. In 1517, Tetzel, a representative of the Pope himself, arrived in Wittenberg to sell indulgences which supposedly would exempt a person from purgatory for a given time and are explained purgatory. Martin Luther heard of this, and it disturbed him. And here's why it disturbed him. His thoughts were, if the richest man in the world says that money can pay our way out of uh, purgatory, then why isn't the Pope himself using his money to rescue people from damnation? Why is the Pope himself asking for money from the common people to build a chapel? Why don't he use his own money? And that caused Martin Luther to do deeper study into the Word of God, upon which what is called the spark for the Reformation happened. He nailed what is known as the 95 Theses upon the door of the church, asking the questions and defending the faith that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. At that moment, man, it's, it created a firestorm, man. A hornet's nest was unloosed. They began to write letters to him. The Pope himself wrote a letter to Martin Luther upon which he burned in the city square in front of everyone. Martin Luther took a stand for Jesus Christ and began to preach the gospel so strongly that many Roman Catholics were turning away from the church and accepting Jesus Christ alone. So they have had enough of that, so they create this council of worms. They had the funniest names back then. i like, are we going fishing? You know, that's what I would have thought of, the council of worms. But they created this council where they brought Martin Luther and set him in front of all the church leaders that are there. And here's what they told him recant. Recant what? Recant what you're teaching about Jesus Christ and faith alone. Recant what you're saying about the Bible. By the way, can I pause right there and just scratch, can we all scratch our heads and say, you know, that, that, that should raise a red flag right there if you're asking me to recant from what the Bible says? Upon which Martin Luther said word for word this, 
He said in a statement, unless I am refuted and convinced by the testimonies of Scripture or by clear arguments, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. If you can disprove this by Scripture or by clear reason, I will. Otherwise, so help me God, I cannot, and here I stand. At that moment, Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He was kicked out. Of the Catholic, it's historical. It's not biblical. Uh, uh, this his, this is history. Re, uh, excommunicated from the church. At that moment, they thought that he was going to kill him. So his friends literally abducted him. They kidnapped Martin Luther against his will and took him to a castle upon which he lived for several years under the protection of armed guards and friends. While there, he translated the New Testament into German. After that, when he began to get a little more freedom, he translated the entire Old Testament into German. After that, he launched what is known today as the Lutheran Church and began to teach the common man and child in classes how to read the Bible so that they themselves could know what God was saying and not the church. Upon which Martin Luther became one of the great heroes of the church and of real and true faith. And although he may not have been perfect in everything, Martin Luther stood upon the fact that the gospel is for every man and every woman, and it's by faith through God, Jesus Christ, alone. And because of that, the Reformation started, the remnant, those robed in white that we saw in Scripture, that small group leading the way to the next church we're going to study next week, which is the church of the gospel, Philadelphia, brotherly love, making a difference for Christ. It's amazing. That gave me a little more, understanding all that historically many years ago gave me a better love for the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I want to show you the lyrics on the screen and we'll close with this. Now, thinking about everything that I've just preached Thinking about the Dark Ages, the Reformation, the church at Sardis. Notice, notice these words. Martin Luther said these. A mighty fortress is our God. You recognize the tune? A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, Satan, does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be, amen? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, it's about his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And through this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Amen. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is, amen forever. What a God, what a Savior, what a remnant of people to stand for truth and righteousness and say no 
to false thinking and orthodoxy. The question we must answer today in closing, right now, are you recognized as alive but actually dead? Or are you alive because you've put your faith in the one who has died? Father, thank you for the time that you've given us today. We want to thank you for joining us on the NLBC podcast today. We hope that God will allow this message to truly make a difference in your life. As you learn more about Him and as you study His Word, we pray that it will cause you to live out the gospel in a whole new way. Again, if you would like to connect with us, feel free to reach out by visiting our website at newlifecasagrande.com. If you are local to the Casa Grande area, then we would love to have you join us in person. We have services at 8.30 and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning with a host of other opportunities to develop a godly community to learn and to grow. We'll see you next week on the New Life Baptist Church podcast.